0: Hello lovelies, I'm quickly jumping in here before the start of today's episode to bring you all a super exciting announcement. On the 21st and 22nd of September, this year, 2024, I am going to be attending CrimeCon UK in London, which is partnered by True Crime. I was very lucky to be able to go last year and I'm so, so excited to be going this year as a creator. CrimeCon is a weekend long event dedicated to all things true crime. So think discussions with detectives, pathologists, live podcast recordings and being able to meet some of your favourite creators. If you'd like to join us, you can buy your tickets directly from the CrimeCon website and you can claim 10% off any ticket with my code, Katelyn. That is C-A-I-T-L-Y-N, all in capital letters. I have popped a direct link to the website in the link tree, which you can find in the description of this episode. I am so excited to see you there. And with that being said, let's jump into today's episode. Hello lovelies, my name is Caitlin, and welcome to another episode of True Crime with Caitlin. Today we're going to be discussing one of the UK's most evil and twisted women who was dubbed She-Devil, and the horrific death that she inflicted on her daughter's father. This is the sadistic torture and murder of Andrew Gardiner. Claire Nichols was born in Portsmouth in 1981. She was the oldest child from her mother, Janet Hall, and her dad who I couldn't find the name of. She had two younger siblings, a sister named Krista and a brother named Simon. Grown up, Claire had what was described as a tough upbringing and disrupted life. When her parents separated, this completely turned her world upside down. Claire began rebelling, she was extremely angry and had trouble managing her anger. At age 15, she left the family home to move in with a much older man named Malcolm and no one did anything to intervene or even try to bring her back home. She was allowed to live with Malcolm, who wasn't family or even a family friend. They were actually so unfamiliar with him that none of them even knew his surname, yet Claire was allowed to live with him while she was still a minor. She would live with Malcolm for two years, and after moving out, Claire began fending for herself, finding work in a charity shop. It would be here in 1999, while working, that she met John Peterson and the two quickly formed a romantic relationship. Claire, now freshly being 18, and John, 1946. So there was a 28 year age gap between the couple and I know large age gap couples work and that's fine but I just don't know when she is very freshly 18 and he's almost 50. You would assume that there was a power dynamic there. John Peterson had formerly worked as a Royal Navy radar operator which meant that he would set up, operate and perform maintenance on radar equipment. Another quick fact about John was that he also happened to be a convicted paedophile, he was a child molester. Despite being fully aware of this, Claire would go on to have three children with John by the time she was 21. They had two girls and a boy and the siblings were all relatively close in age. Now, because Claire's partner was literally a paedophile, social services approached her and told her that she needed to end the relationship with John and keep the children as far away from him as possible, or the children would be taken away from her. You would assume that Claire would choose the former like any other mother would, but she didn't. She wanted the best of both worlds, keeping her children and her child molester boyfriend, so instead of sacking John off and ensuring that her children wouldn't be harmed by him, she decided to up and move over 300 miles away. Claire, John and the three children would move from Portsmouth up to Newcastle in the northeast of England, Claire's mum, sister and brother had all already made that move, so seemingly that's why Claire decided Newcastle was the place to go. And I guess that makes sense, if you are going to do such a big move, you would go where you had people you knew. She would jump from house to house, living in Newcastle, Gateshead and Hebbin, before finally settling in Jarrow, South Tyneside. By the time Claire is in Jarrow, she and John are no longer in a relationship. John would later describe his relationship with Claire as hell, saying she is, quote, the most evil person to walk this earth. It was also him who actually dubbed her the she devil. Claire would flip over the tiniest of things and would cause huge arguments that would always escalate to violence. John would be the victim of extreme domestic abuse. He would be beaten and battered multiple times weekly, even daily by Claire. He would get kicked and punched. He had shoes and other items thrown off of him, and he would be verbally abused. Claire had a very nasty mouth. He couldn't do anything without getting punished off of Claire. Whatever he'd done, it wasn't right. He had to get her permission to do anything, even things as little as pop into the shop. If he wanted to just nip round the corner to go in the shop for something, he had to ask her permission to go to the shop and to also spend the money. If Claire found out that John had done this without permission, she would beat him as a punishment. He felt extreme shame about the domestic violence and worried that the authorities wouldn't take him seriously, which sadly isn't uncommon for men in these situations, so he never reported the abuse towards himself. However, he did make a report to social services saying that he was worried that Claire would abuse their children. And what followed this report? Allegedly, nothing. This report went uninvestigated and seemingly ignored. John would later say, quote, I tried to warn the authorities years ago. I contacted social services because I was afraid she was going to be violent to our kids, but they ignored me. It's very hard when you're beaten up by a woman as a man. You are ashamed. The authorities do not take you seriously. Claire and John broke up in 2003, she's now 22 and he's 50, and the last time he ever saw her was when she just turned up to his house with her new boyfriend and they began to steal almost all of his possessions. John was so scared of Claire that he just let her take anything she wanted, and following the events of today's case, he has since said he feels lucky to be alive. So Claire and her three children are now living on St Paul's Road in Jarrow and she is at the start of what will be a very long on again off again relationship with 38 year old Stephen Martin. Claire was very familiar with Stephen, she had known him for years and that's because he actually dated her mother Janet for seven years prior to them starting a relationship i got so hung up on that we've established that claire prefers older partners which is fine but dating your mom's ex-boyfriend ex-boyfriend of seven years as well like they were in a serious committed relationship it wasn't like a one-night stand or a bit of fun for them both they were in a serious relationship i couldn't get over that claire going out with our mom's ex Anyways, this relationship between Claire and Stephen mirrored her previous relationship with John, in the sense that Claire was incredibly abusive. Stephen would be considered vulnerable and easy to manipulate, as he had a very low IQ of 59. He actually had one of the lowest IQs in the entire country. In 2005, 23 year old Claire would cross paths with 31 year old Andrew Gardner, who today's case centres around. Andrew Gardner was born in 1974 and grew up in Bensham Gateshead. He had both of his parents, Jean and Ken, who adored him, and he was the oldest of three boys, so poor Jean was outnumbered. Andrew and his brothers were always outside doing adventures and exploring. They were always out and about together, either going to the parks or they would enjoy going on fishing trips with their dad. They were all incredibly close. The gardeners would be described as a very happy, loving, close-knit family. Andrew would be considered vulnerable as he had learning difficulties. He attended Joycey Road Community Special School in Gateshead, where he'd done well. In school he did struggle to make friends. He was well liked by his peers but he was just so so quiet and shy. He was really timid so he would avoid confrontation or conflict any which way he could. Most of the time that was him literally just turning around and walking away from it. People closest to Andrew would describe him as pleasant, caring and friendly, someone who wouldn't hurt the fly and would do anything for anyone. Andrew and Claire met while he was signing up for a special needs course in Tyneside. He very briefly dated Krista, who again is Claire's sister, but that didn't turn into anything serious. Andrew would end up in a relationship with Claire and he fell hard for her, he fell head over heels, he was absolutely besotted with this woman. Immediately he gladly took on the role as a dad to Claire's three young children and they all became the light of his life. He would do everything, he'd cook for them and bathe them, he'd play with them, he loved to take them to the park, He ended up doing the school drop-offs and pick-ups and he loved every single second. He really developed a great bond with the children. He was loving this new life, being a part of a family unit with a woman that he really did love. Andrew would wait on Claire hand and foot doing anything and everything for her and of course she would take advantage of this and began to expect from Andrew rather than appreciate what he was doing. He would do all the parently stuff with the children and he would be responsible for keeping the house clean and in order and Claire had very high expectations. The house needed to be like a show home at all times. While Andrew's doing all of this, Claire is just sat dishing out demands. At first, he didn't mind. This was his first serious relationship and likely he didn't know that all of his effort and love should be reciprocated because it wasn't Bane, Claire showed Andrew next to no love or affection whatsoever. I guess really, Claire just saw Andrew as more of a convenience than anything else. He was very submissive. He had a hard time telling her no and setting boundaries. And so because of this, Claire was very easily able to get Andrew to do whatever she wanted, whether that was looking after the kids or scrubbing the house or just doing odd jobs or anything she wanted. She was able to have full control over Andrew, someone that she knew couldn't really say no to her and I think she enjoyed this from him rather than him being an actual partner to her. Despite the appearance that Claire and Andrew were in a healthy relationship, behind closed doors Claire hadn't changed since her relationships with John and Stephen. She was very good at controlling how she wanted to be perceived so from the outside people who knew of her or who knew her from the street or the schoolyard would say that she was lovely and chatty and a great mother and just a regular woman but that was far from the truth that persona was a mask claire was in fact a manipulative short-tempered control freak and an abuser and this extended even outside of her romantic relationships her younger brother simon for example he absolutely idolized her and if claire said jump he asked how high no questions asked Simon once received a beating off of Claire because she didn't like the way he was doing some gardening, and that's just one example. So behind closed doors, Andrew was a victim of coercive control and domestic violence at the hands of Claire Nichols. It started off by her restricting his food intake. She then began isolating Andrew from his family. Again, the gardeners were extremely close. Jane and Ken were parents that would be there for Andrew no matter what. He would always be welcome at their home and so he always had somewhere to go. So, in order for Claire to have the complete control over Andrew that she wants, she needs to eliminate that support system. Sometime in 2006, Andrew shows up to his parents' home in Gateshead, unannounced, asking for money, and Jane and Ken were taken aback by what they saw. They would describe their son as, quote, "...a shadow of his former self, looking unhealthy, unhappy, and that he had lost a lot of weight." Andrew's appearance had totally changed, the vibrant, lively, joyful sun that they knew was now grey and washed out. He complained of pain from his feet and when Jean removed his shoes to take a look at his feet, she could see that they were full of blisters. His parents tried to ask him what was going on, how could they help, what does he want them to do. They borderline begged him to stay with them, but he didn't. He felt like he couldn't. That's how much power Claire mentally had over him and how much fear she had drilled into him. Andrew walked back out of the door of his parents' home in 2006 back to a woman who had slithered her way into his head, manipulated him, and had complete, utter control over him. That would be the last time Jane and Ken saw their precious son alive. Alarmed by what they had seen over the next few days, weeks, and months, they tried calling Andrew, texting him, just trying to get in touch with him, but they never could. Unbeknownst to them, Claire had actually taken Andrew's phone away from him. One day, completely out of the blue, Andrew's nana got a phone call from him. It's unclear whether she actually answered the phone or this was left as a voicemail, but what he said on the call in any ways was he was asking his nana to pass a message on to his parents to tell them that he couldn't see them anymore. While either listening on the phone or listening to this voicemail, Andrew's nana would recall hearing a woman shouting at Andrew in the background, and of course, that was Claire Nichols. In 2008, Claire would end up falling pregnant and she would give birth to another daughter, Andrew's first biological child, and he gushed over her. The birth of his first child really gave Andrew a reason to hang on and gave him something to live for. But on the flip side, Claire now had the perfect weapon to use against Andrew. This same year, Claire and the family would move once again, going from Jarrow to Chilton, which is in County Durham, so just under an hour away. This is Claire's eighth time moving in only eight years, so she obviously can't seem to settle wherever she goes. I can't say why anyone would voluntarily move that many times with three, now four children especially. They moved into a terraced house at number 14 Arthur Street. So, living in here was Claire, Andrew, the four children, and also Claire's brother Simon, who I mentioned earlier. A couple of doors down from them was Claire's mother Janet and her sister Krista and the house directly over the road from Claire was being rented by Stephen Martin, Claire's on and off boyfriend but I don't think he was actually living inside of there for some reason. So, all of these people who are close to Claire, who are within her inner circle, are just a stone's throw away for her, whereas Andrew was living somewhere he was completely unfamiliar with, somewhere where he had no one, no support system, and this would be the place where he would tragically lose his life. Inside of this new house, Claire's domination hit its peak and the abuse of Andrew gradually escalated. She was like a dictator, no one could do anything without her permission first. She decided where they did their shopping, how much they were allowed to spend, what every person was allowed to eat and even how much they were allowed to eat. For Andrew, his food intake became smaller and smaller until he was eventually allowed no food whatsoever. Andrew would be forced to cook and serve their food, then stand and watch as Claire, Simon and the kids all dug in. If he even dared to ask for the smallest portion, he would be screamed at and on the very few occasions when he did try to stand up for himself, he would be subjected to a beating. Claire would only have to give Simon a nod of her head or a certain look, which told him that he had to get up and give Andrew a good hiding. At this point, I believe a lot of the physical abuse came from Simon, who was following orders from Claire. Andrew was once caught stealing some bread from the kitchen cupboards. He was starving and desperate and trying to reason with Claire to let him eat obviously wasn't working and so he had to resort to stealing food from his own home. After being caught and beaten for this, Claire would cut the holes from the pockets of Andrew's clothes so that he couldn't steal or try to hide any food. Following this, she also began monitoring all of the food in the house, as in counting every slice of bread, weighing cereal boxes and cartons of milk, counting packets of crisps, counting tins of beans, all that sort of stuff. And if there was a single thing missing, you can imagine the punishment that was inflicted upon Andrew. Andrew's social interaction was already extremely limited. He was almost always confined in the house where he could only speak if he was spoken to and he had no phone to like call or text or speak with friends or family. The only social interaction and time outside that he really got was when he would do the school pick up and drop off, taking the children to the primary school just at the bottom of the road. This means he probably, roughly, only got about 20 minutes outside every day, Monday to Friday, and that was that. This was eventually stopped in early 2009 as the physical abuse became more visible. Andrew was rapidly dropping weight and often sporting black eyes surrounded by cuts and bruises. Claire couldn't have him taking the children to school because then people would talk. Seven months after moving into 14 Arthur Street, Claire welcomed another man into the home to live with them all and this was Stephen Martin. He did have the keys for the house over the road, but I guess him and Claire were back together again, and that's why he's now moving into this house. From here, the abuse of Andrew Gardner escalated dramatically. What was inflicted upon Andrew Gardner over the course of the next three weeks would later be compared to medieval torture. He would be beaten to a pulp with karate movements. He would be drop kicked. He was once put into an empty bath and had scalding hot water poured over him causing raw painful burns. He was pushed and held onto a red hot radiator which caused burns on his shoulder. He would be scorched with a lighter on his neck and his back. He was slashed with knives, having injuries to his face, chest and arms. He would be whipped with a curtain wire and he would be battered with a wet knotted tea towel, which caused welts all across his body. If all of that wasn't sick enough, Claire Nichols, the active participant and the ringleader to this torture, would get her children involved. She would encourage the children to participate in torturing Andrew, the man who loved them and cared for them like they were his own, the man who stepped up to be a good father figure for them. Claire would praise the children for getting involved. Because they were witnessing it, I guess they almost became... Desensitised to it, torturing Andrew was normal, they didn't know different, they were just copying the adults around them. The kids would play noughts and crosses on Andrew's body. Sources conflict whether it was on his back or his chest, but the kids would carve X's and O's into Andrew's flesh while playing this game. They would use pens and nail varnish to scribble swear words all across Andrew's body and he even once had his nails painted to taunt him because he was, quote, acting like a girl. Using house keys, the kids would also scratch him. Claire's only son, who was just six at the time, once stamped on Andrew's blistered foot with so much force that he fractured it. The boy would later give a sort of insight into Claire's mindset and how she justified what was happening to Andrew. He said, quote, My mum got him and stamped on him. She does that because he is stealing food. He thieved a chocolate bar once. We hit him as well. I scratched him with keys and I also hit him with my fists. We wrote swear words on his back we do that in pen and nail varnish. Andrew was weak and malnourished and so often he had no energy, but Claire wouldn't allow him to sleep. If he was dozing off and dropping his head, he would be dragged up from the floor in order to walk in circles to keep him awake. When he was allowed a moment's sleep, he would be made to sleep on the floor on top of newspaper like a dog who was being toilet trained because Claire didn't want his blood dripping on her carpet or her sofa. The torture of Andrew was sexually arousing for Claire. She would get off after inflicting extreme pain on him. She also loved to try and humiliate him. There were times when Andrew had been severely beaten. He's lay on the floor in pain. And then her and Simon Martin would just strip and just begin having sex right in front of him. Again, Andrew believes that he is in a relationship with Claire, and he obviously loves this woman, and Claire knows that, obviously, the bait in her and them having sex in front of him is embarrassing, but she knows that she's also emotionally hurting him here as well. I know many of you listening will be as equally as horrified as I am, but some of you might be wondering, why didn't he leave? Why didn't Andrew vacate the house at the first red flag? Why didn't he just walk out of that door? And why didn't he say something to someone, anyone? We may never know the definite answer. However, Detective Chief Inspector McNeil has a rough idea. This is him speaking to a journalist in a video posted by the Northern Echo.
1: Why do you think he stayed in that house after
2: suffering for so long? we certainly know he he was the father of of the youngest child in there we we know from witnesses that we spoke to that that he absolutely adored his his, his daughter he absolutely adored her and we we think that was probably one of the main reasons he didn't want to leave his daughter
0: andrew gardiner loved the bones off of his daughter and it's likely that it was his love and adoration for her that kept him in the house enduring what he did Could he have shared the same worry that John Peterson did, that Claire would abuse his daughter if he left? Potentially, Claire could have threatened Andrew, telling him that if he did leave, he'd never see his daughter again. Andrew would be inclined to believe that, because the three older children don't see their dad. But there's also the factor that Claire had moved Andrew almost an hour away from Gateshead, where all of his family and his support system were. He had no phone to contact anyone, no money to get back to Gateshead, and no means of transport, so really his options were virtually non-existent. Claire had brainwashed Andrew, so although he wasn't bound and chained to the home physically, mentally he was. By March 2009, he was so broken mentally and physically that he couldn't leave even if he wanted to. In his final few days Andrew couldn't even walk. He'd have spent those last few days either lay on top of the newspaper on the floor or slumped up against a wall. On the 13th of March Claire had had a huge go at Andrew. Allegedly, she was unhappy that Andrew had made her usually pristine house messy and she was unhappy with his personal hygiene and his, quote, laziness. I don't know what Claire is expecting from Andrew, who is incapacitated. These were probably just excuses in her mind to justify hurting him. If the poor man can't even stand or walk, how is she expecting him to clean around the house or jump in the shower? On this day, as Simon and Stephen pin Andrew down, Claire begins to slap, punch and stamp on him. She then drags him across the floor and begins to strike his head against the concrete before climbing up, presumably on her couch, and jumping down onto Andrew's chest with her knees fracturing some of his ribs. These fractured ribs pierced Andrew's lungs and heart, meaning that he couldn't breathe and he would have slowly suffocated to death. At 11.27pm on the 13th of March 2009, emergency services receive a call from Simon Nichols requesting medical help, telling the operator that he didn't think his friend Andrew was breathing. Paramedics swiftly arrived and when they entered the house, they found Andrew, lay on the floor wearing only a pair of shorts. When asked what had happened, Simon told the paramedics that Andrew had been out that night and when he came home, he just sat on the floor and then collapsed and that he'd been there for about 30 minutes. Simon also shared his theory that he thought Andrew may have been mugged. When a paramedic examined Andrew, he noticed several injuries, some fresh, some partly healed. He noticed that Andrew wasn't breathing, he couldn't find a pulse, but that rigor mortis had already begun. Rigor mortis is the stiffening of the body that happens approximately two hours after death, so immediately Simon saying that Andrew had only been on the floor for about 30 minutes was suspicious. Police were contacted and shortly after, they arrived at 14 Arthur Street. Simon relayed the story back onto police in a bit more detail and this is the story he gave. So he said Andrew had left the house at about 8.30pm that night. He arrived back a couple of hours later complaining that he was hurt and that he'd been assaulted. So he took off his top and his shoes, sat on the floor, made some sort of noise or groan and then fell back collapsing. And that's when Simon called 999. Claire and Stephen, who were also in the house but were apparently upstairs watching TV when Andrew came in, relayed the exact same story. They matched every single detail that Simon said, almost as if it was rehearsed. Usually, when several people are relaying the same story, there will be little differences. So, one might say, oh, it was just before half eight, he went out, and one might say it was just after half eight. One might say he took his shoes off first, and the next will say he took his top off first. I don't think it's very often that the stories match 100% every single time. When police took a look around the house, they also found Janet Claire's mum hid in the bathroom, like hid. What is she hiding from? I don't know because I couldn't find anything else about that. But that was definitely weird. What or why would you be hiding? It was said that when Andrew was pronounced dead at the scene, Claire Court did cry a little bit police sort of get working with that theory investigating whether andrew had been assaulted during a night out it was clear that he had suffered some sort of abuse because he had injuries all over him so maybe simon's story was true it was their job to find out this investigation didn't last long though After discovering the extent of Andrew's injuries, it was clear that he had been abused over the course of several weeks, not just a one-off assault on that night. Andrew Gardner's autopsy took six medical experts many hours over the course of several days to complete because of his vast amount of injuries. At 35 years old and five foot nine, Andrew weighed only eight stone, nine pounds at the time of his death. He was severely malnourished. He should have weighed around the 12 stone mark. The examiners would conclude that he had over 150 separate injuries all across his body. These included 21 rib fractures, which were described as, quote, normally encountered at the severe end of the spectrum, as seen in a car crash or considerable falls from height. He had burns to his neck, back, feet and left leg. He had extensive whip marks across his body. He had a fractured skull along with a blade on his brain, blood poisoning, severe bruising and he had a cut on his arm so deep that it revealed a tendon. All 150 plus injuries were at different stages of healing which proved to the medical experts that Andrew was the victim of a prolonged slore torture. Back in Gateshead, Jean and Ken Gardiner, who had been following the news, had watched reports about the death of a 35-year-old man in Chilton, and it never crossed their mind that that man could have been their son. It had now been two and a half to three years since they last saw Andrew when he arrived at their house back in 2006, asking for some money. They were under the impression that he was still living in Jarrow, they had no idea that he had moved to Childen. It wasn't until an officer arrived at their home, knocked on their door and delivered the devastating news that their first born child, their beloved son Andrew, had been murdered that it really sunk in for them. They were also taken aback to learn that Andrew had a child. He had a daughter, a one-year-old baby girl, their granddaughter. Jane and Ken had absolutely no idea of her existence. Claire didn't allow Andrew to speak to his parents to share the news of their grandchild, and there was no way that she was ever going to allow Andrew to take their daughter to visit Jane and Ken investigators began a murder inquiry and as always they start at home on the night of the 999 call when police took a quick look around the house nothing seemed amiss there was no obvious signs of a struggle nothing suspicious if anything the house was in perfect condition which they came to learn claire's house always was a forensic search of the house ensued and it lit up like a Christmas tree. There was blood splatter all up the walls, on the radiator, on the couch, in the bathroom, all of which wasn't initially visible to the naked eye so it had been cleaned up. This wasn't just little spots that you might find in a house with four kids between scraped knees and nose blades. Investigators discovered a substantial amount of blood, enough to determine that this was a crime scene. By conducting door-to-door inquiries, investigators would discover that the neighbours had no idea what was going on. Now, when I first began researching this, I was thinking, surely someone's got to have heard or noticed something, especially in terraced houses? But, apparently, unfortunately, not. Neighbours didn't even know that Andrew was still residing at the house. One day, he'd done the school run, and then after that, they didn't see him again. So maybe they assumed that he had moved out, or he and Claire had broken up. Some neighbours would be able to recall here shouting, screaming, coming from Claire's home, but it was so little and few and far between that they didn't think anything of it, and they never would have thought that the screaming would have been directed at Andrew, who was always so timid. Teachers at the children's school would talk about Andrew, how he would do the daily pick-up and drop-offs, until he abruptly stopped. One teacher would recall seeing a bruise on Andrew's face one afternoon, and after that, he never came back to school. None of the children gave away an inkling of what was happening back at home either. Was this out of fear? Or had Claire managed to condition and brainwash her children so much that they genuinely thought that this torture, what they were inflicting on Andrew, was a normal thing that didn't even need mentioning? A man who was a TV engineer fitting a satellite on the house would recall hearing Claire shouting at Andrew one day. They were arguing over smorgan. he believed. He recalled hearing Claire threatening Andrew, saying, quote, You know it's my house. When the engineers leave, you leave. You've had one beaten. Do you want another? Janet and Krista would deny any knowledge of what had gone on. They lived on the same street, so it's not unlikely to think that they'd have popped into Claire's house on occasion for a cuppa. So, was Andrew hid out of the way when people came, or did they just turn a blind eye? Also, again, the kids not mentioning anything. I just get stuck on that. I can't believe that they didn't mention a single thing to anyone also if janet had no idea what was going on why was she hiding inside of the bathroom on the day that andrew was found dead there are just so many questions something else that stuck with me which actually quite upset us was something that detective chief inspector McNeil said when he described andrew as an invisible man he said quote many of the neighbors did not even know he lived there He had become an invisible man, not allowed out because his injuries would have been so obvious. That did really just make me feel so, so sad because Claire had essentially made Andrew invisible. Claire Nichols, Simon Nichols and Stephen Martin were all arrested and charged with the murder of Andrew Gardiner. Their trial began in January 2010 at Teesside Crown Court, where, unsurprisingly, they all denied murder. Claire attempted to plead guilty to manslaughter, but that was thrown straight out. She would take the stand at one point in the trial, where she admitted to delivering, quote, the best part of the abuse. She admitted to jumping onto Andrew from a height with her knees, which is what rendered him unconscious, fracturing some of his ribs, which ultimately led to his death. She turned on the waterworks, tearfully telling the jury, court, I admit to jumping on him once on one occasion. The rest of his broken ribs would have been caused by my brother Simon. I did not realise that my knee going into his ribs was going to cause him so much pain. She would deny scalding him with boiling water, burning him with the radiator or lighter and she would also deny whipping him in any way. During the trial, Claire's son gave evidence through a video call and the jury wept as they listened to this now seven-year-old boy recounting the encouragement that he and his siblings received from Claire to abuse Andrew. Simon Nichols took the stand at one point as well, and as he was delivering his testimony, Claire was actually removed from the courtroom because she jumped up and began screaming at him, hurling abuse at him, showing the jury exactly who she was. The trial would last for three weeks, and the whole time Andrew Gardner's parents were sat in the gallery. After a short 39 minutes of deliberation, the jury returned with three guilty verdicts. Claire would be sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 32 years to serve. Simon would be sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 25 years to serve. And Stephen would be sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 20 years to serve. They all had the neck to appeal their sentences because they believed that they were too excessive. You tortured an innocent, vulnerable man to death in a slow and painful way and you think you've got the short end of the stick. Thankfully, their appeals were denied. After their verdicts, Charlie Westberg from Durham Police read out a statement on behalf of Andrew Gardner's family. This is him relaying the statement within a video article posted by the Northern Echo.
1: This is a statement from Andrew's family. His mum, Jean, and his brothers, John and Ian, have been here throughout all the trial. The statement reads as follows. To be told that Andrew was dead was horrible, and I knew there was something wrong straight away. He was someone who would simply walk away from trouble. To listen to the details of how he died, and the suffering he went through was beyond belief. The thoughts of what went on at the hands and direction of that evil woman has left me with nightmares that will probably never go away. Andrew was a pleasant, caring, loving lad who kept out of trouble and was never violent to anyone. It has hurt being here. It has hurt watching her giving evidence, so much so I had to go out of the courtroom. I knew she was lying. It's unspeakable what she and the others did. You don't do that to another human being. They have turned our family's lives upside down and left us empty shells. I called them evil to their faces in court, but it hurt even more to see their smug reaction. No matter how long they are behind bars, the hurt they caused will never go away. It will be with me and my family forever. Thank
0: you very much. Within that same article, Detective Chief Inspector McNeil expresses his thoughts about the case.
1: Mick, Mick, first of all, your your thoughts uh, about what we've seen and heard in
2: this extraordinary case. I think the the judge summed it up quite well when he talked about the violence, the torture, the beatings and, and the burnings. It's been an absolutely horrific case. What I would say, this, is, this has been the worst case of uh, violence that Durham has had to uh, investigate. To call it uh, an extreme case of domestic violence would sadly be an understatement. The injuries suffered by Andrew Gardner uh, could well have been inflicted by the medieval torturers. Claire Nichols is, is, is without doubt a very violent and manipulative, an evil person uh, with no conscience. She, uh, she led... she orchestrated the abuse and the degradation of Andrew and she topped the the suffering of Andrew with acts of humiliation made worse uh, by the fact that she involved uh, her own children.
0: I have linked this article in the source material for this episode if you would like to go and watch the whole of these clips and read the article. Claire Nichols would serve some of her time in Law Newton Prison, which is a women's maximum security prison up here in the northeast. I read that during her time here, I don't know if she's still there or not, I couldn't figure that out, but during the time that she definitely was there, she made very good friends with infamous killer Rose West and another inmate named Valerie Walsh, who was jailed for child abuse. It's very weird that Claire is able to hang around and surround herself with these women, considering she's a mother of four. Rose would welcome Claire and Valerie into her cell where she would teach them how to do embroidery, cross stitch and knitting. I did read that Claire and Rose got into a bit of an argument while they were at work one day. They were working as cleaners, either sweeping or mobbing one of the wings and Rose had stormed off of the job because she was doing all the work and Claire was slacking. So I don't know where their friendship stands today. I couldn't find anything about Simon or Steven's experience since they have been locked up. I did look up John Peterson, who, if you need a little reminder, he was the father of Claire's oldest three children, who was also a convicted paedophile. He was very vocal about his experience with Claire and the abuse that he suffered at her hands throughout their relationship after the murder of Andrew came out. When I looked him up, I discovered that in September 2021, he was jailed for 10 years and 10 months after he pled guilty to Rabin, a 5-year-old girl, on Christmas Eve many years prior. This girl carried this trauma through her childhood and very bravely came forward in 2018 and in 2021 she saw justice come for the man who ruined her life. At this time, John Peterson was 67 years old and living on Lansbury Drive in Burtley. Because of his long sentence, he will more than likely die before he is ever released. I'm not sure where all of Claire's children have ended up. I don't usually like to bring up or sort of dig into killers' children because the crimes that the killers have committed has nothing to do with the children, although of course that is a little bit different with today's case because the children did participate in it. But despite that, they are victims within this too. You look up to your mother and most children will follow blindly and do whatever their mother says without question. So under her direction, I genuinely think that the children were either scared of Claire and that's why they participated. They were worried about what could happen to them if they didn't or they genuinely thought that it was acceptable because Claire was telling these kids this is what is happening because Andrew is stealing most of us have those angels in our lives to show us the difference between right and wrong and good and evil but sadly these poor children didn't have that with claire i hope that wherever they are now they are getting help for the trauma that i don't doubt they carry i do know that andrew's daughter who was only one at the time of his death was adopted Jean and Ken spoke about their granddaughter, saying, quote, I was shocked when I found out she is Andrew's, but I'm pleased she is my granddaughter. It is a relief to know a little bit of Andrew will live on in her, even if we never get to see her. I just broke down when I saw the picture of her. I couldn't hold back my tears. It's like seeing a little bit of Andrew. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to leave me a nice review and to follow the podcast wherever you're listening. I would appreciate that so much. You can follow the podcast over on Instagram at True Crime Caitlin Pod, where I'll be posting images relating to all of the cases and for any updates. Make sure you tune in again next week for a brand new episode. If you or anyone you know is a victim of domestic violence, I have left some resources in the description box below.